Hello and welcome back to Crypto Sapiens. Today's episode is a bit different than others you may have grown familiar with. It is one of a four-part mini-series that explores journalism and Web3. DiGiorno is a series hosted by Crypto Sapiens with the help of JournoDAO and other top builders in the Web3 and journalism space. It seeks to return to the roots and definition of what journalism is all about and to demystify concepts and tools in Web3 that can aid in the process of decentralizing journalism. We hope to present to you, our dear listeners, with many of the novel applications that are being developed today. I truly hope you enjoy this content and find it useful in your crypto journey. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm Eureka John, and welcome to the DiGiorno series, episode one. Um, today, we have four members of the Journo DAO, and uh, this is a four-part series in which we'll, we'll look at different topics in decentralized journalism every week for the next four weeks. This series dovetails off of other mini series in the Crypto Sapiens space. The first one was Web3 ID, and then we had decentralized science, and then now we have decentralized journalism. So we're looking at these different components and these different ideas and these different industries and these different spaces and seeing ways in which they can improve through decentralization. So I guess we can start out with a little introduction of each person, just a brief introduction to say uh, who you are and, and why you're interested in decentralized journalism. So uh, you want to start from the top, Eric? Uh, yeah. Hi, my name's uh, Eric Mack, and uh, I've been a, a freelance journalist for the better part of a, a couple of decades now um, and have always uh, lived and reported from, um, from rural America. Uh, and so I have kind of a, a keen interest in... Um, news deserts uh, in places where there's not enough access to uh, journalism. And I think that's had a um, kind of devastating impact on uh, on civic life around the world. And just a couple of years ago, stumbled into Web3 and DAOs and saw some interesting potential there through uh, decentralization to maybe address those issues and uh, met all these fine people in, in the process. And now we're just uh, kind of hanging out, trying to figure things out and, and building what we hope will be the future. Hi, I'm Crystal Street. I am a uh, was a photojournalist um, for many decades. I was freelance for the most part. Um, I stumbled into this group back in the spring and um, really fell in love with the mission. Um, as a news junkie, I just am really um, into making sure that journalists have sustainability in how they report, but also keeping the um, specter of corporate and advertising um, executives out of the way media is presented um, to the public. I see media as a public good, and I'm hopeful that we can figure out a way to restore that sustainability through decentralization so that um, communities can have access to factual information again, so democracy can function properly. That's the big picture. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Keith Axline. Uh, I had about a decade in uh, media media and journalism at uh, Wired Magazine and then at Medium and uh, have since become a software developer. Uh, so I kind of came into JournoDAO uh, helping with technical stuff, but uh, I also have uh, a decade of built up ideas about how things can work a lot better in the space and primarily uh, getting off of advertising as like a, a business model. And um, connecting value, the value of journalism to the people who are actually um, paying for it and benefiting for it, benefiting from it. So um, yeah, that's why I'm here. 
Uh, I'm Nick. I've been in the crypto space for like a, maybe 11 years, whenever Bitcoin first became a public thing. Um, both sides of my family work in cybersecurity, but I was uh, focusing more on biochemistry. And about two years ago, I started working in the cryptocurrency space. And now I'm doing on-chain analysis to basically apply that to investigative journalism. So here we are, we're talking about decentralized journalism and Web3, and um, there's not a whole lot of mystique, I guess, around the idea of what journalism is, but there's a lot of mystique around what the idea of Web3 is, and Web3 is definitely a buzzword. Um, but we have um, a lot of people, when they hear about the crypto space, the first thing that they hear about is a scam, and uh, they hear about NFTs, and they're immediately turned off by it. Whenever I hear people think about crypto, they immediately talk to a Bitcoiner and the Bitcoiner has to roll it back and they're asking, um, what is money? They're just really trying to, to define the very, very fundamental part of it to re-examine our preconceived ideas about what we know about money. And they're going back to caveman days. When did money start? What is the origin of it? So I guess my logical first step would be for decentralized journalism is to define what is journalism? What's it supposed to be? You know, how did it start? So do you guys have any ideas on that? I'm trying to say, I guess it, it depends how far you want to roll it back. Um, cause, cause journalism and like pu newspaper publishing as we, as we know it, uh, actually started more as, as propaganda, like at least in the United States and, uh, in parts of Europe, you know, uh, publishing began and was run mostly by by political parties. Uh, and so it's it's really only in the last 150 years or so that uh, that the idea of, you know, some sort of um, process for for journalism and journalist journalistic ethics came about. I actually so I, I went to journalism school at the University of Missouri, uh, which touts itself as the first journalism school in the world. Uh, and it was only founded um, in around, I don't have the exact year, it was around 1910. So that should give you uh, an example of you know, how, how new these, these concepts are. And, and to me, um, you know, there's a lot of, I think, different definitions out there that we're constantly arguing about, like <laughs> whether objectivity can even exist or is possible. Um, but I, I always, like what I try to practice, what I was taught and like what I believe in, is that journalism is just the process of of trying to get at the truth of the world and the universe and and life, um, and uh, and doing it in as in as fair a way as possible. Um, like uh, if you can't ob achieve objectivity, which again that's a conversation we can have another time, um, to strive for fairness in 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 talking about the world the way that you see it and reporting what you see. Uh, in a fair way. I think that's kind of at the essence of what I try to keep in mind when I'm working. Okay. Yes. According to Wikipedia here, uh, journalism is the production and distribution of reports on the interaction of events, facts, and ideas and people that are the news of the day and that informs society to at least some degree. I didn't know that journalism was like as a formal discipline was so new. I mean, you, you hear about you know, old newspapers, you know, the town crier, uh, ships coming to port and then people yelling from the ships about news from the the far off lands. Uh, but to, as a discipline, as a formal discipline in the United States around 1910. 
I mean, arguably a little bit earlier, that's when the first like school of journalism where, you know, somebody sought to actually teach it in a standardized way. Um, and, and before that point, it really was the domain. Um, you know, I mean, number one, if you go back much further in history, there's not a whole lot of literate people uh, mm -hmm. walking around. You know, the masses weren't necessarily reading. So, like, you know, gossip kind of ruled the day. And if you were um, literate, you were probably among the elite classes. Um, and, uh, and so those elite classes had newsletters for their political parties. And so most newspapers uh, actually were uh, originally attached to a, a political party. And, and still to this day, some newspapers in the U.S. are called like the Democrat Gazette or the Republican um, Herald, something like that. Yeah, and I think it would be good to like demystify it a, a little bit um, as you know, I kind of view it as not uh, a formal necessary, like a formal process, but I, I feel like there's some friends who are more journalist like that I have <laughs> than others where they're like not willing to uh, just take my word for something. And they're like, well, why do you think that? Like, oh, wait, what did that say again? Where other friends are just like, oh, really? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And it's, um, it's this idea of, you know, getting a lot of different viewpoints and then trying to like triangulate, not even a consensus, but like a truth that was maybe like counterintuitive or, um, or at least you're open to it being uh, some new information, right? Because there's definitely ways to go about collecting information that just confirms your pre-existing ideas and you can feel like that's journalism, but unless you have actually conceptually opened that door, um, to actually being surprised, changing your mind, uh, learning something new, then you're not you're not really gonna um, do that, and that's really hard to do just like as a human being. And so I think formalizing that practice into journalism is helpful for people who don't just naturally find that state on their own, which is probably like not not most people, but it's it's something anyone can do. One thing I want to add, um, kind of piggybacking on what Eric was talking about in the past, before newspapers. Um, a lot of news was transferred peer to peer, but it was in taverns and bars and in the third place where we would gather as a community. So now we can kind of transfer that into decentralization because we're gathering in community virtually. Hmm. You just have to put the frameworks in place to make sure that like there's fact checking and that there's, you know, that information is, is factual, but it's still peer to peer transfer of information. That's, that's really fascinating because the way, um, when you said Eric, you said a lot of it was driven by like the Democrat um, Gazette or whatever, you know, but uh, driven by and top down organizations. And I, and I could see in ancient forms of uh, literature being, you know, government sanctioned town criers. Um, and then, you know, even in the Bible, the books and the epistles of Paul were underground letters, you know, journalism that was more peer to peer and that was decentralized what crystal's describing in in the pubs and the taverns is is um, as a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer system that brings more uh of in the concept of editorial autonomy because i was wondering when this concept of of editorial autonomy kind of really came into play and the importance of it and you know in journalism school in 1910 where you said that, that started that's kind of to me with modernity where the whole idea of editorial autonomy kind of came into play that didn't really have to follow 
people were trying to be as objective as possible and not follow an agenda and, you know, almost a scientific method type of modernity concept, you know, so this editorial autonomy, how important do you think it is in journalism to be a, a true journalism? Okay, well, how are we defining editorial autonomy? Because that's actually not a phrase that I know. Editorial autonomy, I guess, would be the idea of um, not having some kind of centralized control guiding what you say from a top-down type of... Oh, okay. Um, so, like, I, I guess I would call it editorial independence. But yeah, that's like, that's exactly the same thing. It's just a synonym. Like, I would have, I would have, I don't know how much you want to get in, in, into the history, but um, you know, if you if you go back to like the, you know, the era of uh, of like yellow journalism, uh, when you had like uh, the owners of newspapers like William Randolph Hearst uh, and uh, Pulitzer, who like were were warring with each other, and they had. Uh, uh, they were advancing their own interests to the point of like making war uh, mm. through through their newspapers. Um, I, I, following that era, <laughs> the idea that well, you know, maybe we should have kind of a firewall uh, between reporters and what they write and the interests of uh, of the owners and and later on of the the advertisers as well. Uh, you know, if we're going to maintain our, our reputation for uh, telling people the truth, it might be uh, important to introduce this idea that uh, the actual journalists should be, as you say, editorially autonomous and free to report what what they see in front of them and what they see as the truth instead of, you know, basically just what the ed the editors are, I should say, the, the executives and uh, advertisers would, would like to see i hope that answers your question i'm kind of curious what uh what nick thinks of all this so i think i think you're right that to look at things in a historical context when it comes to journalism and media in general it has largely been about propaganda and having editorial authority is kind of how we define what the truth of something is and also the we can get into this later but the the, the tricks involved and in how media is digested by people has a lot to do with what we use to like define what the truth of something is for example uh you know it's it's a saying in journalism that um whether or not you agree with what the news is saying to you they kind of set the topic of conversation with every new generation it resets people's attention and it resets how people are able to ingest and filter out information that they're being presented with and that's why propaganda works fundamentally um also the fact that everybody's kind of busy and uh working so there's not necessarily, you know, education, um, people's ability to invest time and in looking at daily events, all of that ties into how we formulate the equation of like how media is ingested by the population. So if you have too much centralized top-down control and too much propaganda, then that creates almost a breeding ground for unorthodox publications and views and uh, to to create a festering revolution almost of sorts, <laughs> you know, it kind of is bringing me to the modern day era um, of where we are now. And um, how did journalism get to the state that it is in now? And what kind of state is journalism in right now? Uh, you know, we have, we've had web one come in, you know, and, uh, and revolutionize um, the medium the platform in which people can express their views. And so how has that led to where we are? So I, I guess I feel like uh, we have in the last hundred years gone all the way from one point where we're talking about, you know, a couple media magnates and uh, 
um, industrialist billionaires who own publications uh, dictating um, the agenda and the news of the day. We've gone from that to a, a little over 100 years later, uh, kind of the exact opposite where everyone um, can now uh, publish uh, whatever they want on uh, a variety of, of platforms. So it's, it, it's weird in that the platforms are centralized. I'm talking about like Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. Um, but that does provide on the macro scale, like uh, a decentralized approach to news in that anyone can now be a reporter and put out um, their ideas and and their observations to the world. Like that's really new in, in human history that anyone has access to an audience of potentially um, billions. And what's interesting is the results are kind of the same, <laughs> whether it's like highly centralized by, you know, these few guys in New York in 1910, or it's, uh, you know, decentralized to the point where anyone bots, whatever can take advantage of these platforms to put out uh, whatever kind of polarizing uh, news or propaganda or anything. Uh, the result is kind of the same chaos. Um, and so I guess we're kind of at a point now where it's really important to bring journalists back in, into the mix in a, in a, tr in a trusted role, basically as, as now the role going forward, I think will be as curators of just this mass of information that the global populace is, is putting out there. Uh, whereas in the, the past century, journalists were they were giving you all the information that you had access to. If you wanted news of the day, it was probably just coming from a journalist or gossip. Uh, and now that, that gossip is everywhere, uh, along with tons of other data points. So in the 21st century, the role has been from information provider to in, moving to information curator. You, you say that it's become extremely decentralized and any, anybody and everybody can be a journalist. But I mean, five corporations own 90% of U.S. media outlets right now, you know, so how does that work together you know it's, that seems very centralized to me yeah i was just going to say how surprising this outcome is from the perspective of like late 90s early 2000s um like it really was the consensus i think that if you gave people the tools you would democratize publishing and then we would kind of have this uh, utopia and what we didn't really even conceive of at that point was like the algorithms of distribution and uh and scale and the ways that the attention of the mainstream and just the public could be hijacked through various ways and so you know we thought the battle was like just putting like blogger and wordpress and all these things in people's hands and then they could do it and then everything would be great and now we've kind of moved up <laughs> Uh, a level where now we're seeing that like, oh, everyone, everyone needs their own um, algorithm and they need to be in control of like the way that they find things. Because if you put a business behind the algorithm, then uh, things go haywire and you kind of hijack the collective uh, subconscious uh, for, you know, purely economic reasons. And too, I think we're seeing what happens when um, the electorate or the general population loses the ability to both trust the media they consume and then understand the media they're consuming. So we have a lot of people that are consuming information that is just either completely not factual at all, or they don't have the discernment to understand the difference. 
And I don't think we've seen that in the context of, you know, weaponized algorithms as well, like Keith's talking about. You're delivering content in a way and people don't have an ability or haven't cultivated the ability or lost the ability to digest that information in a way that allows them to interact with the world in a more um, balanced manner. Yeah, it's kind of like how uh, Google Maps kind of ruins your ability to find places <laughs> like on on your own. It's like I used to have really good direction sense. And now I'm like, you know, if my phone runs out of batteries, I'm like, wait, where am I? How do I get back? <laughs> and so I think, uh, you know, we've offloaded a lot of this, um, a lot of the skepticism and a lot of the, the work involved in just discerning what's meaningful and truthful for us to um, platforms that don't really have our best interests in mind. So decentralization has in a way, ironically created centralization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it kind of provided the substrate for like new extractive businesses to be built on top of it. And so I think, you know, part of the de movement should be, uh, to pull the agency back to the individual and really express the variety of thought that's out there rather than forcing everyone to identify with this, like these mainstream archetypes that are kind of reinforced for commercial reasons by the, um, like you said, just the four or five companies or entities that uh, control a vast majority of what we see. Well, um, we have a lot of centralization right now in our media, even though there are plenty of decentralized I guess not decentralized, but plenty of ways for individuals to have a voice. So it is kind of a catch 22. Um, Eric, you talk about news deserts. Um, this is a concept I've never heard of before until now with us having nationwide media, you know, and continual access to it. How can there even be news deserts? I don't understand this. So over the past 20 years, the amount of local newspapers that uh, that has that have closed in the United States um, runs. It's, it's over a thousand newspapers that have closed uh, in, in one generation. Uh, and it's a trend that uh, is happening in, in Europe and Latin America and pretty much everywhere as well. News Desert, I believe, if you're looking at the site that I usually look at, is is defined as you, know, you live in a, a county or an area that has uh, one or fewer um, daily or weekly news outlets. Um, whereas, you know, in the past, most metropolitan areas, you know, would have at least two, usually multiple uh, newspapers. Um, so, and, you know, just an example, <laughs> some of the brightest uh, red is actually where I live there in the middle uh, in uh, northern New Mexico. Um, by the way, <laughs> uh, not... Uh, interestingly, that that those bright that bright red section kind of right there, the border of Colorado and New Mexico, uh, most of that uh, is where the biggest wildfires in the country were this summer. Um, so I got to experience firsthand what it's like to live in a place that's literally burning down with no local journalists <laughs> to uh, deliver some vital information um, to, to to the to the populace um, and. To get back to your question a little bit, so like what I think has happened in the last 20 years, uh, interestingly, what killed these newspapers more than any single uh, factor uh, was Craigslist. 
Uh, not that Craig Newmark set out to murder local newspapers, uh, but just the fact that suddenly uh, in the early 2000s, we all had access to basically uh, a free classified service uh, that you could post to for free instantly. I mean, it's frankly a better service than the, the classified section of most newspapers that we all grew up with. Um, and that, that was that eliminated a really vital source of revenue uh for for newspapers um and then it just kind of got worse from there um and so as the advertising business model didn't hold up in the face of web one and web two a lot of these papers uh closed down and so uh then you have fewer local journalists covering what's happening in actual uh small towns even even large and, and mid-size uh cities so you know just kind of coverage of basic stuff like school board meetings city council um that's a lot more rare than it used to be uh mm. when i was a kid in the 90s um and so my theory not just my theory but the one that i agree with is uh this this dearth of local news compared to the past uh what has filled the void left by that is social media and and national news um and both tend to be more toxic and more polarizing than your local news uh, because when when you're dealing with stuff that's happening in your own backyard and when you're dealing with people that have i don't know maybe different views or just disagree with you on you know where the the next uh, landfill should go uh it, it doesn't i mean you got to work with those people because these are things that affect your your daily life mm. um not not so much the case when you're dealing with with national issues there happening in DC and they're with people that you don't have to interact with on a daily basis. Uh, and so, you know, these conversations get a lot more heated, a lot more toxic, like immediately, especially um, on social media because of some of the reasons that uh, Keith brought up with, with the algorithms. So all of this just kind of makes our civic life a lot, a lot less pleasant and a lot less productive. So there's like a sense of accountability that comes with, local news and local coverage, right? That's lacking in social media and in national news. Well, it's, yeah, it's like that guy, like I have some, I have some friends and acquaintances um, who, you know, live in my town. I, I see them out. Our kids go to school together um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're cordial. We have a great time. We'll have a drink at the bar. Uh, and then like, I'll go home and like uh, see the same person kind of flaming me on, on Facebook <laughs> or Twitter in a way that he never would to my face. Yeah, uh, and we've probably all had that experience, and I and I kind of think that's going on uh, writ large with with the media um, because mm -hmm. we because there's less local coverage. All we have is this is a, a really polarized and and uh, unhealthy national debate to entertain ourselves. Yeah, and if you think about it, you kind of have to. The further away something is from you, the more um like crazy the news story has to be to, for it to be interesting to you where it's like you know where the landfill goes is super interesting to you because you don't want to like have a backyard be your landfill or whatever but then if you're going to be paying attention to what's going on in florida or whatever then it's got to be you know florida man dances with gator like six seconds you know like something like that and and so it's the, the whole incentive structure is kind of backwards for making people care about the nuances of, of what other people are doing. And in the absence of that local media, what we're seeing is that these um, school board meetings and town councils, there's a political strategy in place now because there is no local media covering it. So those meetings are becoming so polarized. 
like they have to have security at some of these events. And that is where a lot of these um, divisive political movements are emerging from as it's starting mm -hmm. at school councils and town councils because there is no you know, local journalist there reporting it. So people can swoop in, polarize, and then strategically go in the direction they want to go in. And we're seeing, so we're seeing a lot of political transformation happen at the ground level in community that was, you know, in the past, you had those reporters on the ground covering it in a different way. And we don't have that anymore. I'm trying to restrain myself from letting other people talk. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a really important point that Crystal brought up, um, because I think a lot of a lot of the problems that we see they're in local communities they're they're in microcosm so what you're really like the role of a local journalist is to sit in on those boring town council meetings and and take take 10 seconds of every individual's day to tell them the one thing that they need to know about that town council meeting that's mm. relevant to them that's relevant to whatever happened and the rest is filtered out on the back end and if something crazy happens there's a reporter there and that's supposed to check the behavior and kind of be a, a check on accountability of politicians and accountability of how our system is supposed to function in theory. You're supposed to be a human curator of um, like, you know, the public, the public interest. And that's completely demolished. Am I like, I mean, not to be really cynical, but that is kind of, I think, not the way that things are at the moment um, at a local level. So all these local papers might do day-to-day -day kind of run-of-the-mill stories, but if something interesting happens in that community and that local paper is not there to cover it, there's no accountability. Mm. And a lot of investigations start with local investigations. That's just something that most people don't know. That makes a whole lot of sense because now that I'm, I'm starting to understand the idea of, of news deserts a little more um, because the journalist really is a note taker. I mean, that's it in a way, you know, they're, they're the local appointed note taker. They're the distiller of information and that people come to rely on and trust. And you want to, you want somebody, even in our discord meetings, when we, you know, have a bounty or assign somebody to be the note taker for the meeting, we want to trust that that person will take good notes. Yeah. Um, so, and even a court reporters as well, and the people drawing the pictures in the court because you know they can't have cameras in the courtroom. We want to trust that that person will do good at their job and creating kind of an objective view of what went on. So that is those people are becoming unemployed, and that's creating the news deserts. Then their publications don't exist anymore. Like I'm actually in an area in Boulder where they still have a strong local media because it's Boulder. And they have reporters in all of those meetings and they write about it and they tweet about it. So I can actually keep in the loop of everything that's happening around me when a fire happens or when a council meeting is going on, but that's a resourced area. So it's not a news desert. So okay. in the absence of that resource or a lot of these local media's um, outlets have been bought by, consolidated by, you know, Sinclair Media owns a ton of them. Mm -hmm. And that has a very specific media agenda. So, or political agenda too. So, so yeah. Yeah, one one quick thing to add, John. To sorry, Keith. Uh, to what you were saying is, uh, in addition to the journal, local journalists just taking notes, and another important thing that journalists provide is is context. Because yeah, you can go to these meetings and just like you know, be a stenographer and then like report back the most interesting thing. But it's really important to have a person that goes to all of the meetings, and mm -hmm. so that you know when when somebody comes in and says, hey, we want to build a new um, power plant uh, here in your your town it's going to create all these jobs it's going to lower your your power bill 
Um, that's great. I mean, you can take notes and, and report that, but you also need somebody to say, yeah, but like, yeah, aren't you the company that poisoned the water over there like five years ago um, that I reported on back then? So there is also this important mm. um, being a, a, a ability to provide the whole picture and all the important context, as well as just what happened today. That's that's really insightful. Yeah, that's like they know their audience, right? Like they can take the information and then in order to distill it down into something useful, you have to know like your audience and what that audience needs uh, needs to get from you. And so I think that's um, what a lot of like the centralized media when they come into like more regional areas, they don't really know what's relevant. And so they just kind of cram their um, their one size fits all story into whatever uh, outlet they can find. And I, I was just going to comment to me, what makes sense of this is just the same stuff that happened with, um, you know, Walmart uh, moving in and um, basically shutting down small businesses through like anti-competitive uh, practices. That's basically what media has done to like these news deserts where they were. Um, and in a lot of cases, like literally like under attack and targeted and um, didn't have the resources uh, or whatever um, battle was was thrown at them. Like it was easier for uh, centralized media to come in and like offer like websites uh, for local newspapers who might not have like the res like technical resources or budgets to like, you know, hire somebody locally and do a website. And then, um, and so everybody goes to like this place that has a website because uh, everybody's on, on the web now and they just kind of outcompete on these things, but then they um, only staff that website with like two people and they just, once the other paper goes away, then they just stop competing on like the local stuff and then they just become syndication machines for whatever the backing company was of, of the website you came in. And so, you know, uh, companies did come in and start trying to compete on local, local news, but then once their competition was gone, it was really easy to just, um, suck back all those resources and just stop doing that. Well, how, do, how does, um, advertising dollars come into play here? And how is Web3 going to be able to counteract that and solve that? I guess we can start with how is advertising warping that? And then then we can move into Web3 here. In terms of like, you know, how the advertising dollars um, connects, um, I guess I guess I think of it in terms of how the, the business model has kind of shifted to the, the Web2 uh, era um, in that basically everything is now based on on clicks and attention like I, the actual currency of the day i mean it, it's always been attention but now it's just been um <laughs> revved up to a scale where you know you have a 24-hour news cycle um and like all that matters is getting clicks on uh what is trending like right now uh mm. and like i i say this a lot but it's kind of a, a funny peek behind the curtain of my life as, as a freelancer is I'll write a story, nothing mind blowing, but just, you know, kind of the developments of the day, three or 400 words on something that happened. And that story, the actual text and body of the story might get edited uh, once 
but uh, hopefully once, uh, once or twice, but the headline will be edited like seven or eight times. And then it'll be uh, constantly revisioned and A-B tested over uh, the day. Um, and, and that's all about whatever it takes to, to get the clicks, that get the eyeballs, that, then that is connected to uh, the advertising. Um, and the result is that in, in this era, in the internet era, uh, news has really become a commodity uh, where it's just about um, quantity over quality and it's about mm -hmm. uh, speed over accuracy uh, in a lot of in a lot of cases. Um, just in, in the fact, you know, you put out you put out the facts as you think you have them in your mind, like at that moment. And if it's wrong, we'll we'll correct it later. Like that's just kind of the standard in the industry, um, which seems okay, except that you know we know from studies that uh, the first impression that people have of a story they hang on to, and uh, they don't often see the, the corrections that come down the pipe uh, later. Uh, and so it's funny with like any breaking news event, uh, whether it's a shooting or a natural disaster, just the way those things evolve when you're reporting on them the the like very first take on the very first bit of reporting on this breaking news event it, it's never 100 percent accurate just, it just never mm -hmm. is because you're you're always playing a game of, of telephone with with officials and emergency responders or uh, eyewitnesses just whoever you can get a hold of and they never have the whole story or they maybe they didn't see what they thought they saw they saw or they're you know they're playing telephone with with gossip it's never right the first time it always takes a, a day or two to start to to nail in the facts, but that first impression uh, from that first bit of reporting is what sticks in people's minds, and and that's that's all tied to, like I said, this priority of of uh, quantity over quality and speed over accuracy. I don't really have a solution for that, but it's, it is the reality. Yeah, have you all ever seen or read a story, and then you get to the bottom, and it's like, oh, update like the premise fact of this whole story was actually wrong <laughs> and then but then later like you're going to recount it to friends and like you'll forget that like you read that small like uh correction at the bottom that just basically nullified the whole narrative and then that narrative just like sticks in your head i think of a bigger picture too with advertising um and this isn't a new issue but a lot of times in your bigger media outlets, the advertiser themselves has a lot of um, sway on the editorial selections and what's run and how it's run. The movie Good Night and Good Luck actually really looked deeply at Edward R. Murrow's attack on or reporting on McCarthy. And he had to go to Paley, who ran CBS Entertainment, and argue repeatedly to make sure that he could continue down this line. And they had these arguments about how the news is a public good and Paley, who was the head of that entire industry or the entire entity, um, was like, I have advertisers still. Mm. And you can't say these things right next to my advertisers because you're immediately going against their best interest and they pay the bills for you to be a public good. And so we still have this debate now. Now it's just at scale mm. and you have the billionaires buying the outlets. Um, so one thing that I have hope for in decentralization is that we can figure out a way to make a monetary engine that is not reliant upon a corporation or an advertiser. So there is no editorial conflict that enters the conversation. Yeah, and if you think about it, like the the classified, the reliance on classifieds early on in, in journalism and news was kind of a, 
a fluke and it created this whole path dependence for for decades where you're not actually paying like nobody actually pays for for the quality and the value that they get from news right like i think it's pretty universal that we've all derived like significant value from news stories that we read and like very little of that was actually stuff that we paid for and like really our economy doesn't even know how to materialize that value and so i think that's one of my like biggest hopes for journal dow is to like actually get down to first principles like what value does journalism provide and to whom and how can those people be made to see that that's the value that they're getting out of it and then pay for it like directly to the source of that value where you had this like weird subsidizing where it was like advertising classifieds over here and then that's and then that's subsidizing free news over here hmm. and the economy was never really set up for people to to be like oh the news is a service that i appreciate and get value from and i i should pay for it um and so i just think that's really an odd place to be in history <laughs> and things are finally breaking enough now that people are re-examining it and i think there's opportunity there so advertising pays the journalists and, and the news outlets bills for advertising to work you have to have polarizing type of content to bring in the clicks and to bring the attention so it's this kind of like flywheel effect and this catch-22 that you can't break out of that we're kind of stuck in right how can web3 break this flywheel well so i i mean i guess um I guess I'm I'm interested. This is this is why we're at least I and I think some of the rest of us on this call are, are interested in um, the potential for for local journalism uh, because I think that's that's where we can kind of begin to build up uh, from from the grassroots and kind of rebuild in in a, in a healthy way. Um, and you know, I kind of think of it as like uh, you know, the people who are listening to this are going to be familiar with DAOs, and uh, you know, a DAO is is nothing more if not uh, a community, right? And it's a community in which um, we're using these new tools um, to uh, to craft the rules of the community, the rules of conduct, and, um, and also to determine how uh, value is created and exchanged uh, within the community. Well, what if we were able to take these tools and basically map that onto a a real world community uh of which a local news publication is part of it in you know much the same way like DAOs have their own publications uh you're doing one right now um and so the the local news publication is part of this community again let's think of the community as a DAO and anyone in the community um then has uh, a stake in in that publication um and uh can contribute to the publication and, and it's just kind of this this virtuous circle of instead of kind of thinking of the newspaper as this separate company it's this this building over there that's just reporting about what else, what's going on in the rest of in the rest of uh the community and it's it's always kind of this this black box like oh we got to get the newspaper out here we got to get a reporter out here how do we get them out there how do we you know like what if what if the community was actually actually had a window you know on the newsroom and on some sort of the editorial process there was community ownership and community interaction 
um, with with the media outlet. Uh, and I think you know Web three potentially gives us the tools to begin to to do that to to have community ownership over uh, a local media outlet, kind of in like a, a co op model. Um, yeah, transparency, right? Like, uh, yep. we we can't see Twitter's algorithms or Facebook's algorithms. It's behind a black box somewhere. It's but what if those algorithms were able to be seen and audited, and and, and so everybody knows how those algorithms work. So when we see these targeted, you know, posts and stuff like that, we know that we're being targeted and, and how and why. Right. And I was just thinking at the beginning of this conversation, like what if history just worked out a little bit differently where, um, you know, the four or five main companies that are kind of controlling uh, the inter internet content right now, I'm thinking of like Amazon, um, Facebook, Twitter, Google, um and i think i'm leaving one out but what if one of those like just through an era of history what what if the bbc had become you know one of the main web two platforms mm. a journalistic organization that uh, you know has these ideas of, of transparency and and fairness you know baked into its its ethos uh what if i mean what if facebook was a, a journalistic uh, organization instead of a profit seeking organization like how would that have shaped history differently um and unfortunately no media organizations were really in a position to to assume that role i would say largely because uh the importance of skepticism in in journalism and in the media it's it's such a strong part of the ethos and that's that's healthy um but it also causes a lot of self-inflicted pain in the media and i feel like we're at a similar uh fork in the road right now where there's these new technologies emerging um with web3 that are very aligned with a lot of the ethos of journalism in terms of um you know transparency and in terms of wanting to create an immutable historical record like we're, these tools are like just like built for journalism mm. um and i fear that uh very few are going to to take advantage of it and uh we could be repeating history again but uh we're we're going to shout as loudly as possible to to in the hopes that that won't happen yeah and for me a lot of it comes down to like uh if you want to get concrete about it just disintermediation um which is one of web3's uh superpowers where in the example of you know like now if i wanted to just pay a local journalist or like tip them or something like that like for a story that they put out or or i wanted to contribute to like a a crowdfund to like go and investigate this local issue that i i think is important but um there's no advertiser who would want to uh, advertise against it then how would i do that you know you have to go through a bunch of like legal entities and uh web2 platforms like either paypal or or venmo or like you have to set up like a website you have to do all this stuff and web3 makes like crowdfunding and um and transparency kind of intermingled where you know we don't have to get a bank involved because um potentially somebody could like you know steal all the money it's like once once the money is digital then you can at least know when it's on the rails what it's going to do and so just like web3 is kind of removing um the need for banks i think it's uh you know removing the need for 
a lot of these kind of gatekeeping institutions that we rely on to get things done on a local level. And it really just puts us in touch with each other directly and removes some of the, the ways that that can uh, go wrong in the past. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, I want to get some final thoughts in here. Um, Nick, do you have any final thoughts? I think to tie it back into cryptocurrency and why that's a why that's a piece of this at all, why people continuously bring up Bitcoin and Ethereum, and it's kind of annoying. Um, but it is the reason that that's a part of that conversation is that um, I think journalists should understand that it's about building a new incentive model to fund public goods. That's really what everybody's trying to do in the space. Mm. And a lot of the disenfranchised skilled labor is seeking ways to to basically rebuild their industries because they don't trust laws and governments to successfully get that job done because of the anti-competitive nature of how these industries have been co-opted and kind of the game has been rigged um, in their opinion, or at least in a lot of these people's opinions. I don't want to speak for everybody, but that's, that's the way I see it. So for me, it's about bringing those skilled people to work on the problem in a way that's going to be effective and take it seriously and see if there's a, a, anything out of that that can be useful to traditional infrastructure to learn from. Yeah, beyond, I mean, there's some very big philosophical topics in media and decentralization we can dive into, but what I often come back to is the, just the community journalism. Mm. And in some of these small towns, like uh, in Quartzsite, where you were recently, John, yeah. um, there's this woman, um, I don't even know her name, she runs the local Desert Messenger newspaper by herself for the mm. most part. She sustains herself on ads because this population is older and they still run ads for the local pie shop when they have a two for one special. <laughs> so it funds her work. And a few years ago, she broke a story about um, the water table being depleted outside in the BLM lands north of town hmm. by um, a Saudi Arabia corporation that was growing alfalfa and sending it back overseas. And I read this story. I was like, this is impressive journalism from this this woman who just runs this paper out of the goodness of her heart. Mm. And the AP picked it up a month later and ran the story nationally. So I think of that and how can I empower someone like that through this technology so she can continue doing this work without having to beg Deborah's pie shop for an ad buy. Like that's kind of where I boil it down. Yeah, I guess I would just want to try and make this a universal problem for anyone who like whatever you're concerned about i think uh your problems get better if there's a strong uh local journalism or uh journalism in your community because uh, i for me there's a straight line between the deterioration of um local journalism and the centrally centralization of media and uh the increase in like corruption and um polarization in politics, which pretty much prevents, you know, any progress on so many fronts that we care about. Um, and so this is why this is like a foundational uh, upstream issue that I'm passionate about is uh, I really think if we get local journalism back, then a lot of this, um, I don't know what you call it, just misinformation, disinformation, corruption, all that gets uh, stopped before it can really gain ground. Like as soon as um, you get uh, somebody who games the system and people see that they can be successful, then that just floods the system with um, people who want to like one up that person and then take that spot. And it just, the incentives immediately kind of go to zero. Um, and so we really need, um, you know, all the, all the people who do bad things and do corrupt things, they come from communities 
and we need those communities to be uh, stronger and more informed uh, just so that uh, we can all get back to just being human and like working on things that matter and that we all agree on because uh, fighting amongst ourselves is getting pretty old. And then Eric, you can get the last word here. Journodow.xyz. Uh, so I think uh, everyone else said it perfectly. Um, yeah, there it is. Check it out. Um, you got a Founders NFT if you support the mission. Um, and uh, if you're a human and not a bot, we'd love to have you uh, in the community and in the Discord. And uh, hope to see some uh, of your smiling faces at, uh, you know, probably ETH Denver and other things coming up. Uh, and I'm going to go get this fly now. <laughs> I have noticed the fly. <laughs> um, I, I do want to say, yes, this this um, program here with Crypto Sapiens is in collaboration with JournoDAO. Um, and if you get a founder's JournoDAO NFT, you will uh, be supporting Crypto Sapiens as well. A percentage of those of that will be going to Crypto Sapiens to help continue um, this form of, of journalism as well. For those of you who came here just for the Web3 side of things, I hope you understand a little better now of what journalism is all about. I know we didn't get into the brass tacks of you know all the Web3 tooling and everything like that, but we will. This is just episode one. We wanted to lay the foundation and the groundwork and, and, and figure out what it's all about because I don't have a journalism background and I've been trying to... Um, I, I really at first just came to the Journo Dow uh, town halls for the companionship. <laughs> <laughs> until I really started figuring it all out. And uh, now I'm starting to to actually wrap my head around a lot of the stuff, including news deserts as well. So thank you for that and for uh, um, laying some of these definitions down. The next episode will be about tooling. So we'll get into some of the nitty gritty of how we can do this. And then the third one, we'll be talking about some more philosophical concepts. It'll be a little more open, but we'll be mainly focusing on censorship. And then the fourth episode, to wrap it all up, we'll be talking about funding and how we're going to do it in public goods, um, in journalism as a public good, and Web3 journalism as a public good. Mm -hmm.